Hi, this is Mitchell Ryan, and you're listening to What a Character, the podcast dedicated to character actors. Hey everyone, this is C. Thane Dixon, and on today's episode of What a Character, you will hear a part two of my interview with Romeo Carey, where he will discuss what it was like having Timothy Carey as a father, his father's hobby of training attack dogs, and how his father almost got cast in a Quentin Tarantino film. It's all that and more on today's episode of What a Character. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, before we get on with the show, I just want to tell you all about how you can help make this podcast a smash hit. As many of you may know, the success of a podcast all depends on the support of the audience. A good number of subscriptions, likes, and listens can help us attract high-profile guests, thus making the podcast a success. So let's say that you enjoy this show and you want us to make more episodes. Well, you can help us make that possible by subscribing to us and leaving reviews on podcast platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, by liking and subscribing to us on YouTube, or by following us on social media. You can find the links to our YouTube channel as well as our various social media feeds in the episode description. And if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Your help will be greatly appreciated. Now, on with the show. Tell us about your childhood. What, what was Timothy like as a father? What was he like as a father? Hmm. He had, well, he was a producer. So he had to... to to uh, prove that he was a producer, he had six kids. Uh, he was he was strict. He was old school strict. So that meant that meant uh, that meant you know it's like West Point. I guess that came from his military background. Probably he didn't want. He, probably I'm sure that helped a lot, but uh, he wanted he wanted to make sure everybody was busy busy everybody had chores so as an example i could have whatever i wanted we had like we had like an acre uh grow i grew up on a studio right with three property three houses on a property right. and i liked animals i just i was always into animals and so what do you want so i start off with some ducks some chickens some whatever pigeons turtle i mean I ended up having like at some point over time, no less than like 50 different animals. Wow. And including monkeys, including you know, whatever, whatever, just strange so you're, animals. You're, you're, so you're a had like birds. a whole zoo on your property. I, I yeah. It. We had a, we had a menagerie. Wow. We had a minute. And my sisters and everybody, my brother, they all wanted stuff. They wanted a pony. They wanted, they, we had, it just, it was, it was insane. People would come over and they go, what do you, what do you do with them? Well, you eat, you must eat the chickens. No, we eat the eggs. We got all these animals. You're not eating them. No, they're all our friends. They all got names, but we all had to take care of them. So we're working from the time we woke up to the time we went to sleep, just taking care of animals, which is like, you know, if you're told you don't eat until they eat, Right. Become, that's like, talk about responsibility at, at, a, at a young age. And if you do it with somebody who's actually supervising where you don't get away with anything, it's, it's you know, it becomes, it becomes something that's it's important when you're young because that wiring stays with you forever, the, the responsibility. But so we can go to a restaurant. We would be the most behaved children on the block you just they would be like it would look like these you know we were we were uh uh you know we're under complete control no no crazy stuff we go to a restaurant you see us children out of control that, right. that 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 would never happen 
at a Timothy Carey dinner unless unless he gave us the cue. But no, we were like we were. It was strict, super strict. But my dad was amazing. He was he was a he was a real father. He was home most of the time. He was working, and my dad with his career, he could he could work a couple times a year, and he can take care of everything because his day rate was high. He wasn't a regular actor. He was a he was a special guest star. He was someone who had reached a level of fame, and his his pay grade was unusual. So he had the luxury of working in a couple films a year, and if he did more than that, is it was it was because he wanted to work more. But uh, he didn't need to. He wanted to work on his own stuff. He wanted to be home. He didn't want to be gone. He knew life was about responsibility and being home and he didn't want to he didn't want to miss that it's amazing how people always perceive your father as this you know crazy wild man but yet at home you know he was just this you know really straight-laced guy when it came to parenting and then completely and, and starting he's, a home yeah he's a guy like answering the door on halloween you know giving candy and <laughs> scaring the crap out of you he's but he was also you know you talked about crispin glover right Crispin Glover comes over because he's like, hey, can I just I want to meet your dad. <laughs> okay. Okay. Why don't you come over? We're doing the play. And he comes over and, and we're having a conversation. I just because I want to know why is he so insane? Like, well, he's not insane. He plays an insane person. He could play like someone who's pretty crazy. He goes, Yeah, but he must be insane. No, he's not insane. <laughs> Absolutely not insane. That's all fabricated. It's all an illusion. And he was completely convinced that who he was. And his abilities to do what he did was just a direct result, a result of his ingrained insanity, which is the furthest from the truth. So then when he meets him, now he's convinced that the guy's insane. <laughs> what are you talking about? Because he's like, so he, he so missed the mark of how simple my dad really was, that whatever gestures he was making or whatever conversation they were having, it was was not a conversation that he could resonate with because he was looking for something else. It's kind of like if you look for something negative, you're going to find it no matter what, because you've already set the stage for what the outcome is. And then afterwards I said, he goes, man, your dad's nuts. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, man, no, he's nuts. Oh, okay. But he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't, wasn't, was never nuts. Never. My dad, look, you can't write, you can't write plays and be, uh, my dad, one of the things my dad would do too is besides he had a sideline, it was, it was training dogs for the police department. Hmm. And not only did he train for these dogs that sold for like a hundred thousand dollars, we sold one to George Foreman. Uh, wow. where one of our clients was, was, uh, the Ford family, one of the grandsons, the Henry Ford these guys were over our house with security guys and we were training their dogs. My dad was like such an intellectual at, at, at such a, uh, yeah, he's just one of those guys that was just, he'd do all his own reading, right? Get yeah. he had his own library. He was, he was, uh, speak German. Um, and, and my mother, you know, him, him and my mother together were into importing and exporting German shepherds, but the, his real line and his real hobby was training uh, German shepherds where they import the judges from Germany. Cause that's where it's from. And that's where the real money was at that time. My dad started the first club in America using all the, the German science to train German shepherds under what's called Schutzen, which was, that's the internationally recognized. Um, that's like the pedigree that all the, police departments were buying all their shepherds from Germany and these were imported shepherds and they still do, but he was doing it here and he was doing it at a level that no one had ever done in this country. And he was kind of, he was a pioneer. Um, wow. And so that's something a lot of people don't recognize. He was into birds of prey. He loved Eagles. So we had, we had hawks, we had falcons, we had, uh, from kestrels or red tails. We had a tawny eagle from Pakistan, which is equivalent to a golden eagle. And, uh, and you have to take care of it with a lot of work and you have to understand kind of uh, 
the whole kind of uh, keep of those animals. And is it, there are different stages because a lot of them are going to be set free. So you have to have flight cages. You have to have, you have to keep them wild. You have to feed them rats. Right. You have to breed, you have to breed rats. You have to give them, you know, they have, they have to be in an environment that was really clinical in terms of understanding real critical aspects to keep them, uh, you know, still in, able to fend for themselves in the wild. And then there are some that were relegated to never being free again, because we were resetting wings mostly that were broken and we the surgery that was involved um in re recasting their their wings and then there was a a period of time where they retrain them and reflight them it was really involved and that was all done at our place and some other place that wasn't too far from our place my father was only the second person in the state that had a wildlife uh, license from the federal fishing game for eagles wow. he was it was he was he was noted uh by the city los angeles it was uh something bird man of the year or something like that is it, it was a he was he was honored because he had done so much re rehab to all these birds for years so there, there's a lot there my dad was into a lot of things he was into politics he was into he was a he was a big big supporter of uh, Palestine mm. for a time, yeah. When when all that was going on, so he was he was in correspondence with Washington D.C. and he had a he was part of an organization, Pro Truth International, that um, put him in connection with every heavy hitter in Washington. How did the relationship between uh, your father and, and John Cassavetes get started? Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I know it was a consequence of seeing the world's greatest sinner or my father running into him because they, they had parallel paths. They were both pioneering filmmakers operating independently in Hollywood. And I know once uh, they saw each other's films, they were they were kindred spirits. So my father was regarded as uncle Tim in the Casavetti's household. Wow. I read a story somewhere that the first time Casavetti's met your father, he had Casavetti's wearing this, this suit and then uh, trained one of his attack dogs to attack Casavetti's. Did that really happen? I'm sure it did. Yeah, I mean, my dad would have people come over and wanted to give him the full brunt of kind of what he does, you know, one of his sidelines. And if you're completely protected, back then it was really early. They had these huge, they looked like spacesuits. They were burlap, cotton, but they weighed a ton. It was just huge. And just to get in it was, you know, man, unless you were really fit, you'd be in for some trouble when a dog hit you. And so you'd get this jacket and the arm and the pants and you put them out there and say, okay, just, he wanted them just to feel the impact of what a dog could do. And these dogs, 5,000 pounds of jaw pressure. And it's like the courage test. He's just run out there, go 50 yards. And then I'm going to send the dog and just run at him with your arm out. He'll grab your arm. And that's what the dog does. But when, when they grab your arm, if you're not familiar with it, nine times out of 10, you're going to hit the, you're going to hit the, you know, the ground. And that's what happened. We've had some people pass out. Wow. Yeah, we had, we had, we had, yeah, we had some famous people pass out, but it's part of the experience. What famous people passed out? Uh, what's Robert Downey Jr.'s dad's name? Robert yeah. Downey Sr.? Yeah. Yeah. Him. He passed out. Yeah. So there's, yeah. there's, yeah, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of them want to do it. They want to see what they want to see what it would feel like. But uh, yeah. Now, your father in the late '80s, early '90s worked on a play called The Insect Trainer. What inspired him to make the move from film uh, to stage? Actually, it was John Cassavetes because John Cassavetes, um, he learned would write a novel version of what he was intending to do. And then he'd take that version and turn it into a play. And then he'd produce the play. 
And then upon producing the play, he would produce the feature film. And man, it's genius because you've like really worked out everything you could possibly work out in terms of understanding the material. Right. And then and then you'd use the same cast in the movie and talk about a greased uh, lightning version of what it is we need to do. Everybody knows what's going on when you do that. And so he thought, well, it's nice. It's a nice slow grind to making a film and it's, you're working out the bumps. And so that's what he did. He wanted to put on the play. The play was like 300 pages. He had to get it down to like a hundred. But for the play, it didn't really matter. It was to see what it looks like. And so that's what that's what he embarked on. I'll, I'll be doing the feature film. Oh, we're, we're going to be seeing a, a new film oh, version? Oh, there's going to be a film version of The Insect Trainer. Yeah. Okay. It's going to have a lot of animation in it. And The Insect Trainer is one man's quest to free the fart. One man's quest to free the fart. And it's interesting because when I had met Quentin Tarantino at the time of Reservoir Dogs, uh, which, you know, the film was dedicated to my dad. He's in the number one position in terms of dedications. Right. A, lot of, a lot of interesting people in that list, but my dad was numero uno and for good reason. But I was explaining to him that he's really busy with his play and I told him about the play and Anyway, we, we went back and forth for about a year. And then he called me, he says, hey, I got the money. Let's get, bring your dad over. I, I want him to meet everybody because he wrote the part for him. Wow. The Joe, ba the, the, Joe Cabot. The Joe Cabot part, which was Lawrence Tierney, ended up playing. That was my dad's part. And um, uh, anyway, he ends up not getting the part. And he didn't get the part. Really what happened was uh Keitel mm -hmm. Harvey Keitel didn't like my dad was he afraid of your dad yeah because my dad didn't recognize him and Harvey Keitel everybody's telling my dad how great he is what movie he's in and Harvey Harvey said a couple things about and then they could tell Harvey was waiting for something back and you can see this thing come over him where he was like he's not in my film because Harvey was executive producer and you know, when something in a room, if you're sense, if you've got any sensibilities, what goes on? And then Harvey said, "Okay, who's next?" And everybody looked at Harvey like, "What?" And I was like, "My dad's not going to be in this film." And so, yeah, that. And then you don't hear anything from anybody except Lawrence Tierney. We get a phone call from Lawrence Tierney saying, "He left it on a voicemail." Wish I still had it. Said, hey, hey, Tim. <laughs> These assholes gave me your pot. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I read somewhere that Quentin and uh, regretted not putting Timothy Carey in the movie because of how difficult Lawrence Tierney was. Yeah, yeah Lawrence Tierney gave him a run for his money. All right, it it worked out. I think Lawrence did an amazing job. Yeah, he did a great job. But your your father is Joe Cab, and I could definitely see that. It would have been fun to see a Timothy Carey version of it, but it wasn't meant to be. But imagine Quentin got to meet him. Quentin was like so starstruck. Yeah. Oh, amazing. yeah. Yeah, he was just beside himself. Now, what, what I was getting at was so now I'm like pissed at him because I helped him. I did a lot of things to help Reservoir Dogs become Reservoir Dogs. Was it a lot? It was a lot for me. I got a, I gave him like a pathway. I gave him like instructions on how to get it done and and he followed it and, it and i and i did my part throughout the whole thing taking all his phone calls he'd read me things from books on my dad it was like nonstop filling up my recorder from quentin tarantino just bugging the crap out of me <laughs> and then after he gets i wouldn't even call him back because i'm like this guy's like he's just somebody wants to make a movie so bad but you can imagine how much energy is coming off quentin tarantino we go right. eat we go eat at the commissary because i was working at mgm across the street at Lorimar, there was a cafeteria we'd go eat we and he wouldn't eat i go can i buy you something he goes no I'm, I'm, he just wants to talk can't talk and eat as fast as he talks i go man holy shit <laughs> i said look i guarantee you if you keep up your enthusiasm the way you're talking it's you're gonna someone's gonna buy it this is not that he was afraid no one's gonna let him direct something 
but I gave him a pathway of how get letters of intent and these letters of intent, find the most famous people you can. I'll write the first one. I'm going to write one with Timothy Carey. I'm going to have him sign it. And it's going to be, I think you're an amazing director. You got an amazing script. Line this up. As soon as you get the budget, I want this part. That was, that was the template for, that's what he carried on. So he kept meeting more people trying to get letters of intent and he gets it to Harvey Keitel. And he had his, all his, all his letters of intent as he presented stuff as it was building. So everybody looked at it and go, wow, all these people like want to be in it and they want to see him as a director and he got to do it. And then when, and then when he, my dad doesn't get the part, he explained everything to me up until that point. Then I don't hear from him anymore. What a bastard. I was like, wow, I don't even want to see that movie. Doesn't even, doesn't even call to say he didn't get the part. That was his part. Right. right? And so then I don't see the guy for like two years later. And I run into him at the Horse and Carriage. It's a bar in, in uh, Hollywood. And he's, he's in there and he walked right up to me and says, hey, Romeo. Oh, hey, how you doing? And he says, he says man, that insect trainer. And then he goes into this whole fart thing about the play, like the right. last conversation I had with him two years ago. And he's explaining to his friend this thing about this play. I'm like, wow. I said, well, what was the deal with you never called me back he goes oh it wasn't me it was it was they just you know uh your dad didn't fit the the christopher pen you know that this just wasn't there wasn't a good didn't look like father and son so they just wanted to go with with uh lawrence okay okay whatever so that was that but with these things look he's just he's got too much coming at him that one of the one of the parts isn't going to make a difference to him. He's, he's got too much on his plate now. So I, I get it, but I was a little pissed at him because he went from, he went from my buddy to, I didn't exist anymore, but welcome to Hollywood. Right. Now, well, why was your father obsessed with the concept of flatulence? He wasn't obsessed with it. It's like anything. If you have, if you just like, just like Quentin Tarantino, if you want to do something, you better be passionate about it. Was he passionate about it? Well, he believed in it enough that he thought it was his place in the world that the Western world has to come to the realization that as awful as it sounds and as, as taboo as it is, that he's been given the job to usher in a whole new path in terms of mores about farting. That in fact, like the East, the Chinese have no problem farting. They'll fart in an elevator. They'll fart in the bank line. It doesn't really matter mm -hmm. to them. They already get it. They understand that it's part of the immune system. It's part of, it's part of the natural order. And in fact, he would get ostracized himself. My father would. I was on a set once. He was doing a commercial and he says, hey, I need to take a break. He goes, Tim, we can't take a break. We got to shoot now. He says, I got to go fart. And he goes, what do you got to do? And he goes, I, I got to go fart. And he goes, go fart right here. And man, he farted like a sequence of double barrel farts that shook the set and everybody turned all the lights off and just say, Hey, take as much time as you want. And like <laughs> everybody, everybody ran out of the room. And so he kind of knew what power the fart had over people and how you wouldn't fart except in front of friends that the, the idea of losing uh, your reputation over public farting is just beside everybody. You'd rather hold it in and and uh, suffer the consequences. And my father learned because he had a friend who was a gastroenterologist, and he started explaining to him that farting, the 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 whole idea of farting and not farting is probably uh, more death as a consequence of holding yourself in people at work and people just their job situations where they've got now just know that's methane gas that's pure mm -hmm. exhaust that doesn't belong in the system and mm -hmm. when you take when you take your body's done this amazing job of of collecting it all to put it out of the exhaust pipe and what you've done is an amazing job snuffing it out so as a consequence, it's got to it's got to render the flanks, and it has to go into reverse. And when it goes into reverse, this gastroenterologist said it's at the peril of so many consequential 
ailments from heart attack to <laughs> all these, all, all these, you know, gastrointestinal problems to, to just all these major organs take a hit. And it's, it's a residual effect too. It doesn't happen immediately, but it basically will trigger heart attacks at some point. And it's all a direct result from not farting on cue. And so when my father really became clear about what it was and how, it, how, it, how there's a, a price to pay, he embarked on writing the insect trainer. And the insect trainer is really one man's quest to free the fart. And, and to free it, you, know, you, have to, you have to put it into a context. And he did that. And that, that's, what the, that's what the play is really all about. It's more about inhibition. It's about uh, how we glorify the automobile. The automobile with its, you know, twelve-cylinder combustible engine, you glorify it while that's exuding, you know, uh, enough exhaust in five minutes that a human would do in a lifetime, couldn't do in a lifetime, and that just the the absurdity of the whole act of, you know, and and he also breaks it down into farting isn't just farting. There's degrees of farting, and when you talk about farting. You can say a real fart. That's a fart that's when it's first felt. It's a true fart. And you just, as soon as it's felt, you use every mechanism to exhaust it, to get it out, right? And you force it out because you're helping your body along, right? It's no different than burping or coughing or sneezing. You just, it's one of those things. It should be in the same category, but it's not. And that because of your inhibition, and because of your, you know, society's, uh, you know, frowning on it, you, you stop it. And by stopping it, what happens with that gas is now it's trapped in the lower alimentary canal and in the lower, you know, in the lower region, it's picking up all this putrid. That's where, that's where the sewer is. And so, and what you're doing is you're holding it until you got a safe place to do it. And if it isn't a safe place, you train yourself to let it escape silently. And as it escapes silently, it's no longer a true fart that hardly has any smell at all because it wasn't stuck in that region very long that it came from the intestine and coming from the intestine, it hasn't been in the putrid uh, dung to, to pick up all the unnecessary booty. And so as a consequence, there's a different category. You go from the, the true fart which is like a double barrel fart to a silent creeper and a silent creeper is the fart that everybody uses. And that fart comes out with a payload that just, that's where the fart gets its bad name. So, and he loved it because he found that in the diary of a genius by Salvador Dali, mm -hmm. he had, he had found uh, this whole you know, chapters dedicated to farting and how historically where it came from and how it, how it, how it became an Elizabethan taboo to this day. And that once he found that Salvador Dali, which was one of his heroes was, uh, was a champion. He collaborated with Dali on writing the insect trainer. And so it was an intimate, the insect trainer is an intimate collaboration with Timothy Carey and his, his uh, one of his idols, Salvador Dali. And my dad came to really love Salvador Dali because they would, they would coin my father the thespian equivalent to Salvador Dali. I don't think a lot of people realize that. that that's interesting. Makes perfect sense. Yes, it does. Now, when Seinfeld first came on, a lot of people said that, that the character of Kramer was very much inspired by your father. What, what are your thoughts on this? And did your father ever realize that there was a sitcom character based so much on him? Yeah, I don't think so. I think, I mean, I've heard that story too. And it's probably, look, comedians used to show up at any event that my dad would do. My dad would show the film the world's greatest center at you know big art houses mm -hmm. and 
I was doing a documentary. I'm still working on a lifelong documentary on my dad. And so I'd get down there with cameras, 16 millimeter. We'd shoot. Everybody would show up. And who would be down there? Every comedian you can imagine. They were all from Bobcat Goldthwait to, to uh, I don't know. Dennis Miller. Yeah, I mean, it was a star-studded, you know, Crispin Glover was there too. I mean, there's all these celebrities would show up for a Timothy Carey event. I'm not real big on, on, on comedians, but no, there were, and they all show up in the documentary. I haven't, I haven't looked at that footage in a while, but I, I remember just doing a slow-mo on all the, all the celebrities that were, um, that were comedians. Cause they, I mean, there wasn't better fodder in terms of learning about comedy than from a character like my dad. It's a, it's a, the huge study in just trying to pick up little riffs, little, you know, uh, innuendos, little, um, even if it's just body language, but there's, there's so much to it in terms of what's coming off of it. So, uh, my dad had a thing. He'd like going to the zoo, go to the zoo because the greatest characters, uh, can be found in animals. If you're a, a guy who's looking right to create a characterization right so he right. he could pick stuff up that's why he liked animals too he like he could become the eagle you know he'd like you he, he end up completely he could turn his face into an eagle and just have the uh personality of an eagle and nothing better than an eagle eagle is right. a lot like him completely independent completely self-sufficient and, and bold self as well yeah exactly yeah. So, I mean, good actors look for, look for other actors to take you know, the best stuff from and why not? Right. You know, I, I bet if you go through that footage nine times out of 10, Nicholas Cage has got to be in there. Yeah. right. <laughs> Cause uh, it, it seems like um, Nicholas Cage is a big devotee of, of your father. Right. Well, a lot of people are, a lot of people, I mean, why not? I mean, it's like, the, there's enough material out there to, um, you know, to, to gravitate towards and to be able to use as material. I mean, Johnny Depp's a good example. How does he use the material? I don't know. It could be just for inspiration. And a lot of people, my dad was their inspiration in terms of just, man, if he could do it, I could do it. Right. Right. If, if I could, if I could just take some of that and be as, as, as free and uninhibited about doing it and uh, pulling it off in the way he does. And it's just kind of knowing yourself and knowing, uh, knowing what you got to do. It's a, it's, you know, you think about if you were to put every role against each other and see what he did, it's kind of, you know, we, you know, we take, we take, uh, when, when it comes to reverence of actors, people that have reached the degree of acting that's uh, you, know, you put on a pedestal, they're on the Parthenon of of great actors, and we we uh, we shower them with uh, you know with uh, adulation. But the the truth of the matter is, take someone like Brando. Oh, I mean, you can't you can't mess with Brando because Brando's Brando. He's, look how many films he did. Look at his acting performance. You can't touch him, right? right? He's a god. He's a god. He's a god. But if you gave Brando the task of writing his own movie and producing it himself and starring in it himself, um, you wonder how he'd do, right? Right. Ask him to do. I want a sinister version of you, and do, do another one where you're, where you're, you know, go from Satan to Santa Claus, and same thing. Do it all yourself. Do it all yourself, right? So when you when you have the capacity, and that's where someone like Brando or someone like I mean Kubrick had a, an appreciation. Kubrick would go watch my dad's dailies and comment on it on the world's greatest center. He would tell him what he thought of it, so he knew guy like Kubrick knew he wasn't dealing with just an actor. He's dealing with a guy like himself who's even beyond him because Kubrick's not acting. He's like, he's everything in the kitchen sink. Right. right. And right. so the gravity of who you're dealing with 
and the capacity to take on Hollywood when nobody else can do it. One costs too much. It's too much work. And who's going to, you know, who's going to do that? And it's just not possible back then. You have to be, you have to be a complete maverick and a renegade. And then to exist in Hollywood at all for any long period of time and to always be the special guest star and maintain a status, even though you've been fired more than anything, you've been, you know, it's just, it's kind of because people knew when they got that, they got that commodity that turned their film into something better. And if it was a bad guy, which he played the most, uh, my father understood the good guy's only as good as the bad guy's bad. Right. And right. when you get, when you get somebody who knows that, then you've got a different film and not everybody knows that, but the people who know it know they can get it out of certain commodities. And there's not a lot of commodities when my dad was around that can really pull that off in the way he could. Now tell us about yourself. Uh, you're an actor, director. What, what projects are you working on currently? I've got right now I'm working on probably I'm putting the most energy into a it's something for Netflix and it's a 12 part series on 60s rock and roll oh. and, it, and it centers around Los Angeles. So everybody who was somebody in Los Angeles um, in the 60s all the way to the the end of the age of innocence with, with the Manson family right. um, is, um, is in it. And it's, it's a takeoff from where the action is. This one's called where the action was. And okay. yeah, our next big interview is with uh, Ringo Starr. Wow. Wow. So we've done, we've done, we've done about 20 interviews and the one of the the mark Lindsay's one of the main kind of characters in it he's walking us through it he's he sets it off because he was on the set of where the action was or where the action where the action is that was a dick clark production out of los mm -hmm. angeles and it had everybody who was somebody he was the house band who would introduce everybody he was he was he was there from the beginning to the end so uh, Mark Lindsay's part of Paul Revere and the Raiders. Then he had his own independent career. He's highlighted in Once Upon a Time in America. He's one of Quentin's like favorite favorite guys. You actually see his album yeah. and his music's throughout the you know the, on the soundtrack. But um, yeah, so we have we have everybody who's somebody in it, and it's pretty exciting. So that's why that's one of the probably the hottest item I'm working on right now. I have, I have a couple older films that I've been sitting on. One is my dad's documentary. Mm -hmm. That it's it's time for a it's time to actually reassemble a, a new version of it because I've collected new interviews. We do these long period kind of pieces. It's kind of amazing to watch the different grades of film as you move closer in time. Um, there's also a film that I need to complete that I did. Um, it was it was Lawrence Tierney's last film, hmm. and, it's, and it stars Danny Trejo. It's called oh, wow. Wanna, Wannabe. And it's a Mexican. It's like a feature documentary, but it's it's really a feature film with a documentary in it. And I've cut both, and it actually works better as a combination of both. So it's um, the the version that I'm going to finish with is going to be not the feature film, but a docu-feature. And so that's, that's something I'm working on. So I've been really, I've been really busy running, running, doing, I'm, I got music videos. I still shoot music videos for internationally for oh. artists. And I've got, uh, I've always got a series of ongoing projects that, that, that could be corporate stuff. It could be stuff for school districts um but i've got also i run a, a media director for a spectrum channel in beverly hills and then i i teach for a, a media department 
and uh, at Beverly Hills High School. Right. And I also I also teach at uh, Santa Monica for Santa Monica College. So I've got my hands in a lot of things besides being a father and um, you know maintaining maintaining my uh, my domestic uh, duties. So I've got a lot on my plate. And and they, in life, if you're not playing a big enough game, you'll screw it up. That's so, certainly true. Yeah. Yeah. Take on more than you can carry. Take on more than you can carry. Now, um, when, when can we expect the release of the uh, Timothy Carey documentary? There's a bunch of versions that exist. Yeah, I might just put out the version that I have. The last time I did one was uh, I put together something for a film festival. I was in uh, it's a, at Anthology. I got invited in New York to Anthology for a Timothy Carey tribute. Right. But, then I, but then I got invited. I, I cut that version. Then I recut it when I went to uh, my most recent trip, which was another Timothy Carey tribute was in uh, uh, Tasmania. It was the premiere of The World's Greatest Sinner in Australia. And so I showed the documentary and I've spoken all over the world, really. I've been in more than a dozen countries and uh, was all a catalyst from starting, so as my dad dies, like 1994, the year he died, uh, not long after I was invited, started with Martin Scorsese and Martin Scorsese invited me uh, to Munich. Uh, and it was for the, under the banner of the independent filmmakers and the greatest rock and roll films ever made. And one of his choices was The World's Greatest Sinner. And once you end up in that wow. Munich film, film Festival catalog and you're featured, all the other festivals want you because they all show up. There's, you know, there's, 50,000 people that show up for that. And so the catalogs go all around the world and then you're on a list. And so I'm still playing that list out. So it's, it's so with that, I was, I'd always cut another version of a documentary, but I'm always collecting. The problem is I collect more and more interviews along the way. And it's just, it's just juggling. Once I, the, the greatest catalyst, when you get invited to another thing and your documentary is going to be, you know, have, have a major part in it that's when I really start cutting again. Cause now I've got a, I've got a catalyst. It's nice mm -hmm. when you have a catalyst, I've got, it's kind of like, I like reading 10 books at one time and I never finished the books. Yeah. I'm always just always shuffling. The commercial vehicles always get done first. The ones that are the Netflix project, you know, where the action is, uh, where the action was is, is the, is primary now cause I'm working with other producers and, they're you know they're invested in it so that's that's on the front burner but what was it like working with lawrence tyranny i know everyone has their their stories about lawrence lawrence was sweet lawrence was a great guy very intelligent very intelligent very short views he's punch punch happy but i mean at at the base of it think of this guy this guy was he was he was like the GQ uh, Sears and Roebuck hunk. He was it. He was top of the line model um, in America. He was, he was, a, he was a, you know, a collegiate athlete. He was, he was in his prime. He was, uh, he was just, it could have been any, just imagine any huge celebrity today, you know, like Wahlberg or all these guys that, that were like models and then became celebrities. He was, he was the model of, you know, he was it. And he was a huge celebrity. Everybody knew who he was, but uh, he just was a bad drunk. When he got drunk, he became his Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And if you could separate the alcohol from, from his life, it's pretty story storybook. But now I got, I, I spent a lot of time with him. I used to go visit him in Hollywood when nobody else would. And I used to always say, wow, these people who use him in films and then, and then throw him away. It's just kind of sad that he didn't, everybody's too frightened by his own personality. 
But for me, it, I could completely resonate with him because he reminded me a lot of my dad, except my dad wasn't, he didn't have the Dr. Jekyll side, but he's just this towering, imposing figure that um, to scare the, the life out of a, a weak man. Um, just it gave him a little too much wine, he, he can go off. But I had some of the most amazing experiences with him. I used to take him out, I used to go places, go to restaurants, go to movies, go to, you know, take him, take him to the pier. Wow. Yeah. And he had, he had, he had a stroke too during that time. So it got more and more progressively more difficult for him to walk around. And as he got, you know, he had one foot in the grave, the other in a banana peel. He just had less and less friends because it became too much work, but he was in my film. He was in my film. I got him on, shot him on in, 35 millimeter and we shot some of the other formats but uh it's amazing performance and he's a great podcast too because i re i recorded a lot of audio with him some of the best is is his messages that he left on my recorder hey thought you said you're coming over <laughs> don't lie to me you're telling somebody you're coming over you come over <laughs> Lawrence was quite a character. Oh, he was. Yeah, he really was. But no, good guy. I videotaped him too, which isn't in my dad's documentary yet. I've got to put him in. I hadn't known him that well when I did the interview with the documentary and he got, he got angry. I forgot. He didn't like the questions I was asking him. He was irritated. So the documentary, for the documentary, it didn't go so well. I did get something, but it, nothing like what I wanted. It was a good lesson on how to deal with cantankerous people. I learned a lot from what's doing your, that. What's your secret to dealing with cantankerous people? Uh, don't be moved by their cantankerousness. Just don't be moved by it. It's just exercising something. Stay on course and be really nice. Be really nice and just stay with it because they're not going to go anywhere. They're just, they're just having a moment. So let them have our moment. And then get back to it. And just, you know, as long as they know that you appreciate them and you got a couple more questions and, and then, you know, maybe, maybe ask them if they got a question for you just to, just to mix it up. I mean, the idea is don't be frightened by it. The moment you're frightened by it, it all goes south. But the idea isn't, there can only be one person in the mix when you're doing a documentary that's um, out of control. And it, it can't be you. You got to be a complete opposite. So you have to be like water, like it didn't affect you. I understand. Make, I, I, I completely understand what you're saying. Being complete, um, in tune with him, and then pick it up from there. It's like it's even if you're taking a different, it could be a different conversation. Change the subject for a minute. And uh, I had a I had a problem though because my camera guy knew him a little and he got him going and once he got him going then it was it was i couldn't i i lost control of the situation but later we became friends and but too bad i didn't get a real i didn't get a real um interview from him for my dad but i got enough i got i got him showing up in it timothy carries a lot like me <laughs> that's what he said a lot like me there's a couple lines. There's a couple lines in it that are just priceless. I got the best line I ever got was from Anderson, Richard Anderson. Richard Anderson was in the world's greatest. No, was in Pads of Glory. Richard and, Dean Anderson's father, right? Uh, Richard Anderson was like the six million dollar man, Wonder Woman. He was a mm. big TV actor, but he plays he plays like the. Uh, the attorney he's like a he's, he's the uh in the court scene he's the one basically cornering uh my dad's character into copying that he he uh surrendered he was cowardice and uh he was in the movie and he's kind of like a real straight laced guy richard anderson and i got to interview him and he came in with a photo and a story about Lincoln and wanted to tell me right at the beginning of the documentary 
And I think I interviewed him for no less than an hour, probably more like 90 minutes. And he said, because uh, your dad was just like Lincoln. He couldn't really understand him, but he's a genius. And then um, we get into the whole conversation about working with him in Paths of Glory. And he said, he says, I said, so what was the, so what was the real problem you had with working with him? Because I had read somewhere that he in, he in particular didn't like he didn't like the one scene that that the court scene and he says yeah i didn't like it because your dad kept interrupting me every time i'd be doing my lines he would he would say something it's just 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 to interrupt what i was doing and i couldn't stand it he, i i just throwing me off and he says and he said he said uh he had no discipline. He had nothing. He's I was there to like work the rehearsals. He was fine in a rehearsable. When he came to shoot, he was wasn't the same guy. And that it's wrong for an actor to he went into this whole thing about about how now he hates my dad and how horrible he was. And he was like, Wow, I'm getting to the good stuff. But then he, <laughs> but then he says they fired him. They, they ended up firing my dad because my dad said when he was in Pads of Glory. Aldolf Manju, which was a big star in the film, a European star, was getting all the all the write-ups in the paper. Kirk Douglas was getting all the this the handful of celebrities were getting all the you know all the all the ink. So he decided he was kind of finished shooting and he was getting bored. So he he staged his own kidnapping, and he was in all the papers internationally. There was this, all looking for him. There was there were. They were dragging a lake where, where the kidnapping happened. And there's a, all the police, the Munich police, they all went into, you know, their search and rescue. And then he showed up bound and gagged in a ditch. And then they, you know, the Germans interrogated him and they said, nah, we don't believe you. And uh, uh, so James Harris said, you got to go home because they're going to sue us. They want us to pay for everything. You just need to leave. So, my dad left. Um, James Harris, by the way, ended up hiring my dad in one of the movies, only only movie I think he ever directed called Fast Walking with uh, James Woods. James Woods, yeah. And uh, so they were still friends, even you know, thirty years after they did, um, you know, the you know, Paths of Glory. But the best line that we got from from Richard Anderson was, I said so. He goes, yeah, and how can an actor stage his own kidnapping and and just piss on a whole production by just leaving it? He had there were still scenes we wanted to shoot with him. I go, well, he came back, and he goes, there's more to that story. And I said, well, there is. I said, well, what happened? He says, well, I'm not going to tell you. I said, why not? And he says, he says, well, I, I don't think it's right. I go, yeah, you can't be wrong. You can tell me it's it's part of the story. And he goes. Well, from what I understand, your father was raped. I'm like, what? What? Timothy Carey was raped. I'm like, whoa, not likely. But these stories just go around, right? But so he had he had staged his own kidnapping, and when when my dad left because he had to leave abruptly after after the interrogation, the story got you know rumors happen. So his rumor was that Timothy Carey was raped, which not even close. My dad, the way it turned out was my dad just took off with some friends to a, a neighboring city, uh, not far. And then he just came back and he, and he had a letter written and they, they tied him up and put him in a ditch where some people found him. So it looked like he had a plausible story. It was all staged, <laughs> but I just never thought because I had watched I had watched for years uh, Six Million Dollar Man and I watched uh, Bionic Woman and he was always the straight guy. We always mm -hmm. he was in two series at the same time. I never thought I'd live to hear him say your father was raped. <laughs> it's the last thing you want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like the opening line in the new documentary. <laughs> Put in the trailer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, let's let's take some listener questions. Usually, when I do a podcast, I put out a questionnaire on social media saying, "Hey, I'm interviewing so and so. Do you have any questions?" And we have a few here. All righty. Uh, Spencer Kaiman 
or Kaimon, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Spencer Kaimon asks, uh, what was Timothy's reaction to his voice being dubbed in East of Eden? He didn't mind. He didn't, he thought he would, it would have been better to leave it in, but he understood that, um, uh, who was that Hungarian director? Yeah. He, Ilya Kazan? Ilya Kazan. Yeah. He, he didn't like his Brooklyn accent. And he thought like it was too, it was too Brooklynese. So what are you going to do? It wasn't throughout. It was just that one scene, but he didn't mind. He didn't mind. He really loved Ilya Kazan. He thought Ilya Kazan, I think he got in trouble with uh, the, the whole McCarthy thing. And that kind of sunk his career. A guy like him should have been making movies. You know, the guy lived to be like 90, should have been making movies his whole life, but no one would give him a job. John Harris asks, uh, what is your favorite Timothy Carey performance? Well, it would have to be the world's greatest sinner, but short of the world's greatest sinner, uh, I really, I really liked him in Paths of Glory, of course, but I think a, probably my favorite, favorite of all time in terms of feature films where he, where he's, he's got a really, I think a, a really good uh, part and it's with a really good cast. You can see everybody's like, everybody's uh, firing on all cylinders is a Western called uh, Waterhole Number 3. And I was on the set when they made it. So it was, it's a James Coburn, Carol O'Connor, Claude Atkins. It was just like a real, this is one of those roles where my dad was, was he was, he was the tough guy that he, that we all know, but he was also, you could see his comedy side. And it was a director that let him, let him do what he wanted to do. And everybody was, everybody was just, it was, it was an amazing film. Like guy like Lee Marvin came up to him and a bunch of actors would come up to him and tell him what amazing that was just I loved you in that film because it's one of those it's one of those kind of performances that that just kind of put the film on another level it's just a western but it's a great western kind it's of like that Blake Edwards directed that yeah right? that's right, right. right yeah right yeah Jill Johnson asks where where can I find world, the world's greatest sinner? Where where can we greatest do it? Sinner? Uh, the world's greatest sinner you can find on Amazon, Amazon, Amazon Prime, and you can find it. Uh, still sell DVDs on uh, eBay. Okay. Well, yep. well, Jill, there you go. Uh, before we end this interview, can you leave us with some words of wisdom? Uh, yeah, I could leave you with some words of wisdom. Well, art you know, the artistic endeavor is always, is always, uh, for people like me and you, it's, 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 it's central, but before you can get to central, I think never lose sight of the fact that life and the sum total of everything we are is right here where I'm breathing, right here where you're breathing. Everything that you ever were and everything you'll ever be is a culmination of this moment. And to, to get back to the place that we arrived in as infinite beings living right here in an unfolding moment and being aware of it. And if you can, if you can harness that and get back to that space, and that means living right here in the moment, as it's unfolding. And some of that takes meditation. It takes, it takes listening to someone that, that, that understands it better than you until you get into that position. Someone like Eckhart Tolle, um, he's a good example, but there's a lot of examples. Um, and then understanding that your future will only arrive in the present moment and that every action in the present moment is a consequence of everything that'll come to be and nothing else. And so it's amazing what you can do if you take that voice in your head that never stops talking and put it to the back seat and recognize that that voice is a hard drive that we created. It's our archive that's come to life. It's like an AI, right? 
And it's a useful AI because if you've had incredible experiences, you have this massive archive, but never confuse the archive with the infinite you because the infinite you created the archive and the archives tied to the ego and the ego, unfortunately, is never wrong. And the only time, unfortunately, most people show up is when they got to forgive something they did because the ego got them in trouble. So what you need to learn is like a dog humping your leg 24 hours a day. Just know that that voice in your head isn't you and that you need to take the steering wheel back and recognize if you do that and you cross reference the voice in your head with the voice of the true you that lives in the present moment, cross reference it. Uh, you know, if you don't cross reference it, you'll end up with road rage, right? Right. The voice in your head is going to say, go, don't let that fucker get away with that shit. Are you kidding me? And you're like, wait, I'm on my way to work. They're on their way to work. I don't think they did it on purpose. I'm not, I don't even know who they are. I'm going to be fine with it. Thank you for that input and recognize that there's, you know, it's like someone says, I can't live with myself before they commit suicide. I can't live with myself. There's two people involved. And, and how can't there be? Who do you think you're listening to? How do you think the voice comes to you? There is two people. Separate the two. Recognize that the voice isn't you. It's not, it can't live in the moment because it was created in the past. And so once you come to that space and you realize and you exercise, it takes a lot of time to get to a place where you live in the present moment. And if you live in the present moment, everything's taken care of because you can't. If you made a mistake, say you're sorry. Whatever you did, fix it right now, uh, because this is everything. And if you live in the moment, you treat everybody with as much love and respect and, and answer to your true voice, life, you have nothing to worry about. Because what's there to worry about except the present moment? And if the present moment, you're feeling pretty good, you've got enough food in your stomach, you've got a roof over your head, life is heaven. So that's it. That's my... my, my uh, my whole kind of mantra is to be present and to recognize life. We're human beings. And as human beings, just being is good enough. Everything else is extra. You don't have to be a superstar. Not that you can't be, but there isn't anything wrong with someone sitting in a park and living in the park. It, for them, it could be heaven. And not to not to look at it any differently than than anything else, because whatever you whatever you want in life, once you've once you've created the idea that that's what I'm going to do, there isn't a lot that can stop you. So, yeah, very wise words and deeds. Well, Romeo, uh, thank you so much for appearing on my show. Can't wait to see uh, all of your upcoming projects. Best of luck with everything. Thank you, Colin. I think you've done an amazing job for your second show. Your uh, your podcast is destined to be, I think, famous. Keep up the good work and look, let's do it again. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps it up for part two of our interview with Romeo Carey. If you are a fan of Timothy Carey and you want to find out more about his life, you may want to check out the TimothyCareyExperience.com. It is a blog site dedicated to all things Timothy Carey. There you will read interviews with people who have worked with him, and you'll also find behind-the-scenes anecdotes related to many of his film roles and TV appearances. It's definitely a site you will want to check out if you want to gain a better understanding of who Timothy Carey was not only as an artist, but also as a human being. Trust me, once you visit the site, you will find yourself exploring it for hours and hours. The site is really that fascinating. Now, before we end this episode, I just want to remind you that if you love the show and you want us to grow in popularity, you can help us do that by rating and reviewing this podcast. You can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. You can even leave a review of our podcast on our website at whatacharacterpodcast.com. Just click on Rate Show and you'll be taken to a page where you can give your critique of the show. 
And while you're there, you can even donate to our podcast by clicking on the PayPal link and submitting your desired amount. And don't forget to subscribe to our email mailing list if you want to receive email alerts about upcoming shows or even receive email-exclusive episodes of our show. You can do this by typing in your name and email address on the right side of the homepage and clicking on subscribe. Now, if you want to reach out to us, please feel free to do so. If you have any guest suggestions or you just want to tell us how great you think the show is, you can do so by sending us an email at westgrovemedia at gmail.com. You could even leave us a voice message on the show website by clicking on the microphone button on the bottom right and recording a message. And please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. And if you watch us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, please give this video a like. All in all, your support will definitely help us not only make the podcast successful, but it will be greatly appreciated as well. Well, that about does it for this episode of What a Character. Join us next week for our interview with Lance Henriksen, where he will talk about growing up in the mean streets of New York, getting snubbed by Lee Marvin, and meeting director James Cameron for the first time. It's all that and more on next week's What a Character. Anyway, thank you for listening and take it easy. Bye. There's a full moon tonight, and the moon a silvery bright. This makes me lonely, so lonely. Bangles, come on, let's go a little bit. And blue, I try, how I try, but the moon, a silvery bright, makes me lonely, so lonely and blue. Then I fought, and that's when the thing started.